0: This is Bonjour Chai, the home base edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi in Toronto. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, we talk about Base, which is a new organization uh, devoted to creating uh, spaces in neighborhoods with Jewish uh, rabbis that are pluralistic and multi denominational for young adults to experience Judaism in the comfort of somebody's living room. Uh, we also go through the Jewish world uh, and many, many more little items of fun and interest. Phoebe, how's your week been?
1: It's been a good week. Um, yeah. How about you, Avi? How's your week been?
0: Um, a whirlwind. Um, it's not my nacis, but my niece got engaged, uh, so I went off to uh, New Jersey. Mazel to to, to Yes, say. to go mm-hmm. and have uh, to go to the engagement party. Um, the it was perfectly timed in theory, where I'd be able to go on Sunday, drive my parents to New Jersey. The, the, the drive back was insane because it was a crazy, like, Nor'easter coming through um, Albany and all the way up through the Adirondacks. But um, we made it home safe, and we are here now to be able to record. It's been a, a busy week on the real calendar, right? We had Pi Day. Is <laughs> Pi Day Jewish? I don't, I, I don't know. I'm
1: not sure. Is it March break. March break. Big, big thing big in Toronto is happening. Um, yeah, so that's what we've been up to, even though, yeah, so my daughter... Um, is doing uh, her school's daycare for some of it. And also we went to the art gallery of Ontario's children era- children's area, which we had somehow never known existed, but a friend of hers from school um, alerted, to, alerted us to this. And there's a whole section of it downstairs that's um, all for children to play. And it's really, really wonderful. And I guess this is kind of a little bit of a sense of the pandemic being quasi over that you have now these huge groups of small children playing together yeah. um in a museum Do they have parallel so exhibits
0: a... for the children that's mirrored from what's above <laughs> like is there a Leonard Cohen exhibit for children in the um, children's That would be
1: <laughs> that would be incredible and Terrifying. I seriously wish there were <laughs> and now <laughs> no it's just um you know playing like hallelujah down there while they um you know paint. No. But maybe there should yeah, be.
0: It is. It's three <laughs> years coming on the uh onset of the pandemic.
1: It certainly is. And that's that both feels like forever and no time at all, right?
0: It it really does. Like it feels like both yesterday and a million years ago when like I have Distinct memories of some very very specific stuff that was like, oh, this is what's happening now because nothing else is happening in the world, and it was like the the pictures of the no pollution, or you know, uh, John Krasninsky doing Krasn- Krasinski doing his uh, some good news. He from the Office, you know, the the actor. No,
1: I know who you yes. mean, but I don't know
0: how to. <laughs> I think it's Krasinski. Last he had yeah. the okay. some good news, and that was supposed to be like this really cool, like, oh look, you see, there's good news in the world, and I'm doing it in a suit, but I'm also in my boxers and all of these little like distinct very very mm-hmm. clear moments and also like complete complete like blank on what was happening during the days and during the like moments to moments sometimes
1: for sure for sure i mean i i feel very struck by it not having ended as i imagined that, that there would be this end like masks would be a thing of the past and you know the whole thing would feel just over and to me it just seems like this has be- become incorporated like COVID and responses to COVID have become really just incorporated into life and they, you know, we're not obviously still in the zone we were in but I think there is still um, yeah, as a parent of young children, this kind of do you have playdates in people's houses? People are, some some people are still and you know, for understandable reasons, tentative. Um, Yeah, I think it's, I don't think there is that returning to the before has happened or could happen but I think a lot depends on your milieu, right? Like who, which world are you in? You know?
0: I was hearing these people saying that, you know, the, the way that, you know, it works for example in Japan, where if you're sick, Mm -hmm. even a little bit, right, you wear a mask and it's not socially like unacceptable Mm -hmm. and you don't Mm -hmm. feel like a pariah. You're actually like saying, I want to be hanging out with you people. I don't want to get you sick. So I'm going to wear a mask. Whereas here, if you put on a mask, it's like, Oh, they're a crazy person. And there's still this like uh, stigma attached to, to you know, to the mask, right? You're the you're the like you're you're COVID Orthodox, right? And you're like, oh yeah, you're one of those <laughs> yes. people. And then if you wear like the full mask and you don't go anywhere, you're COVID Haredi, and you know, like, <laughs> and and we look at oh, absolutely. And-
1: but it, you're right. I think that it has. I think you're totally right to make an analogy to religion because I think there is um, people are making these decisions, and I include myself. I too am a person on the basis of you know, sort of rational medical considerations, as well as sort of cultural affinity, as you know, as well as just sort of what feels right, like what people around you are doing, all of these things. I think it's really complicated because I don't think, I don't have any coherent policy about when, beyond like a doctor's office about when I'm wearing a mask and not. But I was wondering like what the, um, because I wrote a little bit about just kind of thinking back on these three years and how they've been, um, For the website, but I was just thinking about sort of the Jewish angle on this, namely, um, specifically something that David Sachs, the writer David Sachs, had said um, in a piece that's in the CJN magazine um, about sort of more liberal Jews, I don't remember if he said reform specifically, um, being sort of the most into masking in the population. And I was just wondering, like, how it all kind of breaks down, like, in terms of taking COVID seriously, because a part of me, and again, this is the sort of secular American New York Jew part of me thinks, oh, yes, definitely super Jewish to take COVID super seriously, to be, you know, thinking about immunocompromised members of the community, all this, you know, always wear a mask and so forth. But then you have other segments of the Jewish community who obviously are not having a sort of...
0: I can easily see that comment going one of both ways, right? Either he's trying to say, yes, the liberal community is very conscientious and really cares a lot more than many other segments of the population because we are the liberal community that is observant, that cares a lot about their Judaism. They, they do this and they mask and they care and they're they're, they're really cautious and want to be, you know, very much the strict letter of the law. And that's one way of reading that. Uh, you can easily read that statement as saying, I want to critique the Orthodox for being completely completely like mask avoidant and completely covid Oh I don't COVID think he avoidant. meant either.
1: I think he was being a little bit I think it was a bit more mocking of the hyper serious about covid.
0: Sure, but the yeah, flip side yeah. of that is mocking yeah. the the orthodox community who yes. for years have been you know perceived possibly rightfully so as completely avoiding the entirety of the pandemic and saying we need to meet, you know, for services, we need to go to yeshiva, we need to do this, we need to go to that to do that. And like, that's just as much potentially mocking and problematic, right, as, as much as you might have a problem with their uh, masking policy, you got to be careful to keep it to the masking policy and not to the, well, these are people who have nothing to do with society. And this is just yet another example of what happens there. And
1: Oh, I don't know if that see, I'm wondering if it's about having nothing to do with society, or more just about sort of left right divides and the way it all got so politicized, especially in the States, but also no, but actually, especially in Canada, I mean, the trucker protests and so forth that kind of where you sure. stood on COVID became this kind of Look, proxy. For, I was in like you know. ground
0: zero of right wing Judaism uh, over the past few days. Like I spent an afternoon in Teaneck, New Jersey, which is both amazing and terrifying sometimes because you see like bizarre right wing support for, you know, so many causes that there absolutely shouldn't be simply because that's what right wing uh, equ- is equated with right wing, you know, in certain segments of the population. Um, but then again, you're aware that like you know what their living their society their living arrangements the way in which they function um is so fundamentally different from so many other ways of living that sometimes you do need to live in an enclave sometimes you do need to you know have uh spaces that where people you know we're where, where you make sense to a lot of other people, or you can walk into a store and it's a Judaica store. And in one place you can have to, you have the ability to like buy all the things you need, whether they're a little edgy or a, like super observant and everybody gets to pick their thing. I walked into a Judaica store. I got to pick, I got to like in one place, pick my favorite brand of Kipa, which is a thing because now there's like a lot of them and you have to, they're harder to find in Canada. I got bananagrams in Hebrew right, for my kids, which was really funny to see. Um, And I also picked up a whole bunch of books. One of them was called uh, Monologues from the Makom, where you don't even need to explain that to somebody in Teaneck, but I'll explain that to you. Makom is a euphemism that the rabbis use in the Talmud, right, for, it literally means a place, right, what they used to refer to as, as that place. And it's often referred to like being used as a euphemism for female genitalia. Right. So
1: that I did not know. So
0: (laughs) monologues from the Macomb was a book of uh, first person essays and poetry and pieces uh, about female sexuality from women. From Orthodox, so like the vagina
1: monologues, but
0: exactly, yeah, okay. So okay. All of this is I picked see. up in one store, right? That's the world that you live in, and sometimes that means that you're separate from everybody else, and sometimes that means that you feel like you, those rules don't always apply to you. But there are definitely places where one can legitimately critique um, the Orthodox world, right? I there was, did you see this uh, trailer for this fake TV show uh, called? unseen housewives it was like a three minute trailer that was teasing this show but it wasn't really and it was supposed to be like you know real housewife style but it was a bunch of teen girls and it was there to talk about like like forced teen marriage
1: are they Orthodox Jewish teen girls? This uh,
0: organization that made this video was called Unchained at Last. It was started by somebody who is an ex-Haredi woman who is now she calls herself like a vehemently atheist or something. Um, and there was a lot of abusive and forced marriages in Haredi Orthodox communities in Brooklyn and in Israel and elsewhere. So she started this organization for that, but has since expanded to include many many non-Orthodox um, and non-Jewish um, forced uh, marriages pointing out the plight of what happens when you get uh, married at 14 uh, with your parents' consent because they think that that's important and you're not in a position to really like do anything about it.
1: Does this happen in a lot in Canada or because I know in the States, there are states where that can happen.
0: According to the video, it is legal in 43 U.S. states. It's an American thing. Um, uh, Having In somebody who signs marriage licenses all the time as somebody who officiates, uh, I do believe the law is that you can be 16 and get married with parental permission in Quebec. Um, And I'm pretty sure that that's the law most anywhere else. Um, But there are people who will get a religious marriage without having to deal with the legal marriage because they think that that's important. And that has been – it's not common, but it is not – it is – more common than you would imagine, even if it is still uncommon that there are stories of people that are 14 and 15 that get engaged. um, And, you know, it's what they're told to do, and that that's important. And I would say that that's a legitimate critique.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, because I think the secular world sometimes goes too far in the other direction. And what I, I don't think it's good to tell women, especially to um, that you're only really adult enough to, you know, get married or especially have kids until you're, I don't know, in your mid to late 30s, because obviously, then, you know, that's becomes more difficult to have them. And, you know, if you I think a better society might make it a little easier for the women who want to have children, not at 15, but also, you know, not at 45 to have, you know,
0: look, I think you have to remember that if these people are, uh, coming from a world where arranged marriage makes perfect sense to them. That is the world where they understand. And again, I'm not under, I'm not justifying it. I'm explaining. And if you have, uh, kids that are, have hormones that are developing and well, we might as well channel it into something. And if you're 15 and you can have children, why not get married early and, um, start your life as early as you possibly can. And, uh, because in their minds, your real life only starts when you're married almost. And so let's do it early. And I'm not explaining. I'm not justifying it. I'm just explaining it. I do think that it is fundamentally problematic because we, it's coming from a world where we never really understood what adolescence was.
1: That's interesting. I wonder because the, there have been all these stats about young people having much less sex than they used to. And this was even before COVID. And now with this whole, you know, all of these lockdowns having had who knows what impact, I get the sense that young people are just like, uh, their reputation is that they're just on their phones these days anyway, and not interacting in person, um, except perhaps in special environments to encourage them to interact in person, um, such as perhaps, you know, a Moisha house. Or something are you, are you moving this, into our
0: main discussion here? I'm just, I'm
1: too, doing a little teaser. We I'm, 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 we're yeah. uh, have
0: an interview today with uh, Jesse Pakin, who is the new head of base. Uh, have you heard of base
1: before? First base, second base, third base, or home. Oh my base? God. If
0: that was actually part of their like nomenclature, that would be very funny. <laughs> um, oh my God. Can you imagine if that dating nights and they called it like getting to, getting to second base?
1: <laughs> I mean, they would have now they have to yeah. do that.
0: Um, so base is part of this movement of decentralizing large uh, decentralizing Jewish communal work. Um, Look, honestly, to be fair and to give credit to Chabad, Chabad was really the pioneers in this world where they went and said, we don't need these large synagogues, even though they sometimes had large synagogues. We're going to have Chabad houses in different neighborhoods, and we're going to have a couple that's going to live in this Chabad house, and they are going to be around for anybody in the community, and we'll have Shabbat meals in their house, and they will uh, do stuff in their house, and they will you know, turn their house into a home for the people and become a Chabad house for, for the world, to, or the, the neighborhood to enjoy. Um, the... Liberal denominations are a little slower to the game, but you know, I would say one of the major things that shifted in that direction was the rise of Moisha houses. Uh, Moisha houses was a movement started relatively recently. Um, we've had Moisha house discussions on the podcast before, but just to recap, um, it's what happens. Uh, right, our former co-host Alana was a resident of Moisha house for uh, quite a while in a variety of places in Vancouver, in Toronto. Um, There's a Moishe House in Montreal. There are several in Toronto. Moishe House is basically a place where... in exchange for getting heavily subsidized rent, uh, you have four to six, maybe eight even, I don't know how many exactly, uh, young adults between the age of 22 and 32 live there. Um, They get to agree on what type of Judaism they are going to live communally, meaning you can keep unkosher food maybe in the fridge, but you can't cook it because we need the pots to stay the same. Like everybody gets to do that for themselves. And in exchange for that, they put on about an event a week, right? Several events a month for young adults within their community or in their neighborhood within the house, right? So the idea is let's not, let's uh, communally lead, decentralized, lay-led events for young adults in the community, for people that are 22 to 32, that's sort of like uh, an antidote. it's a post-Hillel life. You graduated from university and uh, you're going on to live in the world and you still need a community of like-minded people, but you can maybe do this for yourself. So here you go. So this was the Moisha House model. Um, Base... Uh, emerged out of Hillel, actually, um, which was similar but a little bit different. And now Base, actually, as we hear in the interview, uh, moved into the, uh, was bought out or was transferred over to Moisha House as a subsidiary of them. And um, Base is basically a little bit different, in, where in exchange for you know, the house and a stipend and et cetera, et cetera, a rabbinic couple moves into a neighborhood, lives in this house and turns their house into a space for events and for Shabbat dinners and for classes and stuff like that. So it's more rabbinically led, but still small communities and decentralized away from large institutions and stuff like that.
1: So is it residential, though, also based? So the couple lives there.
0: Yeah, the there couple, been a couple, but other people, but but other people don't. 20, yeah. okay, so that's the difference okay. between the Moisha House, let's say, and the base. Is that the Moisha House? The events, uh, the young adults are living in this place and are um, hosting uh, the events themselves and running these events. Sometimes they bring in guests. I've been as a rabbi, I've been a guest lecturer at, at a Moishe House in Montreal, and I've done other stuff for other Moisha Houses. Um, so that's happened. But in the base model, the only couple, the only people that are living there are the rabbinic couple. But their home is basically becoming an open space.
1: I see. And and in terms of who's looking for this, because I guess maybe this is just um like a sort of micro generational thing, but to me I, I I just am wondering how many people twenty two sure, but like closer to the thirty two end of things are looking for uh, having a domestic sphere that isn't you and your partner. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think this is, it makes sense. I think a lot of this, like you say, has to do with people getting married later and rents being high. I also just that think that, would that be, the yeah.
0: decentralized model is is important. And this will come up in the interview. Maybe we can discuss afterwards. But like the idea where Judaism for a lot of people doesn't live in these big institutions. They'd rather go to a space where there's only five or ten people that they know and that they like regularly seeing. Um, and that's sort of a micro community makes a lot more sense to you people now and that's probably the model that existed um for much of Jewish history with the exception of a couple hundred years when you have these large institutions right starting in western europe and moving into you know north america um you often had micro communities, you had smaller communities, and that decentralization um, has a lot of advantages to it.
1: Is this the 15-minute city conversation a little Perhaps, bit? Perhaps. You know? We should talk about 15-minute yeah, city that's become, that's a Toronto thing. Yeah, I wonder. That. It's not just Toronto, but I was going to say, I think this might be a, like a Jewish, um, like what you're talking about, the decentralization yeah. is very and much that. and so
0: the same way that you have independent coffee shops, Instead of Starbucks and instead of grocery stores, you have smaller, you know, independent ones. Um, why shouldn't we have that for a Jewish model as well? Right. And that that's where the model is going. to. Sure. Let's hear that interview with Jesse Pakin right after we hear from our sponsor.
2: During World War Two, the Nazis began a little known program of extermination. For their own children. In Peter Klenot's new mystery thriller, The Unwanted, 14-year-old Hannah Ziegler is being driven by her grandfather and her psychiatrist to a euthanasia center. 16-year-old Silky Hartenstein graces the cover of Nazi propaganda magazines. Avi Kreisler is a Munich police detective rounded up for Dachau. And a patrician father hopes his son David McAuliffe will be elected the first Catholic president of the United States. In the unwanted, in the aftermath of war, revenge brings these four people together in ways unimaginable. The unwanted. Do not skip to the last page. Find it at Amazon and Barnes & Noble.
0: One of the more promising areas of Judaism today is the rise of a more decentralized form of Jewish life. Whether one wants to attribute this to the Chabad houses is up for debate, but what is certain is that independent minyanim, smaller, non-denominational rabbinical schools, and Moisha houses are a growing trend and a force to be reckoned with. One of these new phenomenon is the BASE movement. Originally started by Hillel and now under the Moisha house umbrella, BASE seeks to place rabbinic couples in neighborhoods with the intention of making their homes the center of a new Jewish renaissance there. Rabbi Jesse Pakin is the new executive director of BASE. He is a native of Thornhill, and he joins us today. Jesse, welcome
3: to Bonjour High. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be with you.
0: So you've been involved in emerging networks and independent Jewish living for a while now. You've studied at an independent yeshiva. You were part of this Jewish Emergent Network, which in and of itself is a collection of these various organizations. What drew you to this type of Judaism?
3: It's a great starting question. Um, You know, there's all of this jargon terminology like emergent and innovative, uh, and independent and decentralized, and like to to an extent, all of that is true, right? Like those are good terms that we can use sociologically, philosophically, psychologically to describe what's happening right now. But in um, I guess in a different sense, none of this is new, right? The idea of inviting people into a deep, close relationship with a spiritual mentor who could be a rabbi. could be a rabbinic partner, um, a teacher who's not up uh, at the front of a lecture hall, but is in amongst you, um, a, a mashpia, a spiritual influencer who's deeply interested in your personal growth. None of these are new ideas. They're very ancient ideas. So sure, we're you know it's decentralized. Or another way of looking at it is we've just kind of shifted the focus of gravity away from, uh, or the center of the circle away from a legacy institution to somewhere else, right? The center of our focus uh, is just in a different place. Um, so yes, it's exciting and it's new and it's innovative and it's vibrant and people are very excited about being a part of this. And obviously there's a lot of success, but the the center is, is still there. It's just um, in a different place. Why, why am I excited by this? You know, I had uh, really the benefit, and I'm deeply grateful for this, for um, growing up in a Jewish environment that was not bound by the walls of legacy institutions or movements. I moved in and out of the entire spectrum of Jewish religiosity and observance uh, was introduced to and had the ability to contribute in um, many different spaces. And what I learned on the other end of that is it can be lonely and confusing. um, But in the end, I think it's all the more rich because you have access to a Judaism that is not owned or held just by a capital M movement, which, by the way, was invented in Germany in the 18th century. Um, And that Judaism at its uh, best Um, is accessible to everyone, um, is not owned or gate-kept by an institution or a specific kind of rabbi, but that we can get closer to really the ikara, the core of our tradition. And that's why I think that, you know, it's funny to call us decentralized. I feel like my Judaism and the Judaism that's happening at base is very centralized, but the ikara, the the core of it is just in a different place.
0: Yes, so it's actually, you you answered uh, one of my questions before I even got to ask it about, you know, uh, the fact that you know legacy institutions for lack of a better term large institutional judaism is actually more the anomaly than the norm historically and we're probably going back to where judaism always was and i can get into you know what the differences were then versus now um but you know so that's that in and of itself i think is fascinating to see that we are moving um in that direction that it's exciting and that people are finding different ways to connect um why do you think now is the time again so if we can jump ahead and or move around a bit um why, why do you think now is that specific time for why people are gravitating towards this as a movement for lack of a better term
3: yeah you know, I, sh- I should say, even before answering the question, um, that I, I, I'm i interested in the vibrant success of synagogues also. My wife is a congregational rabbi um, who does amazing mm, me work. Me too. And I'm, not in- <laughs> I'm not interested in the downfall of synagogues or legacy institutions in any way. I think look, the more people who I'm, are i I'm on a
0: fence the between you and me, but—
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, Look, you know, I think we're clearly in a moment. Uh, I was thinking about an experience that I had. Um, I was at an Indigo in Montreal— And I was just walking around the store. And of course, if you've been in an indigo lately, you know, like the book section is actually the smaller section. There's no Um, books. And I was walking through the um, kind of like the household goods section, and I saw uh, something called the cosmic box. Um, and it had like a, a palm reading kit in it and some tarot cards and incense um, and a whole guide uh, to understanding the nature of the cosmos. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, you might think that this is just like it's just a toy uh, and it's just something for people to kind of put, you know, in their home because they like the aesthetic of it. But I also think it's a symbol. And there's a reason I haven't been able to get this image out of my head. I think it's a symbol that... Um, people in their 20s and 30s and even in their 40s are um, looking for a sense of purpose and relevance and meaning in their lives. And for, listen, the data is very clear on this for all sorts of reasons. Um, Legacy institutions and particularly synagogues are not tapping into that that need and that demand. So it's unsurprising that you would see a generation of people looking to alternative sources like the Cosmic Box. The other example that... um, uh, you know, I find deeply troubling is coming out of SoulCycle right now, you know, the fitness center Soul Soul mm-hmm. SoulCycle is right now launching a new institution called, wait for it, Peoplehood, which I thought was a Jewish term until I learned that SoulCycle was also doing it. Um, and what it is, is a group of people sitting in a circle with a guide, answering the deepest questions of meaning in life it sounds familiar yeah, so, to anyone right it, it's so fascinating people,
0: to me because because in that case i'm not even sure i'm really cynical about that in the sense yeah, that what happened with soul cycle is that they did this movement and this guy who you probably know and i've met a few times casper terculi who who does work in ritual and wrote a book called the power of mm-hmm. ritual takes yeah. soul cycle and shows it as example number 1 of people want spirituality they just wanted other places look at soul cycle and soul cycle is saying to themselves hey you know what let's... Let's actually capitalize on the thing that other people identified, and let's lean into that.
3: So, Casper is a great example because I admire his work. Um, he's spoken at the school where I used to work in DC, and I think the the he's clearly tapped into and understands very deeply um, this moment. Casper's launching a new initiative. Um, that is small spiritual gatherings of people who are in relationship with each other, with a mentor, to tap into— and it's explicitly spiritual. It's labeled as spiritual. You can go uh, to the website and learn about uh, how they define spirituality. But who is the number one um, uh, influencer on that website, the number one inspiration for the work that they're doing? It's Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Um, and so they're explicitly taking from our misura, from our tradition— I think that Heschel would agree that his message was not exclusively for Jews. But when a secularized version of spirituality is being commodified and sold using the wisdom from our tradition, um, it pains me and it hurts me because I I feel a deep sense of ownership for this tradition. And it's happening because we're not doing it, right? Like we're not responding to that need. If, if, uh, If a website can pitch Heschel to the secular spiritual seekers and we're struggling with that, Boy, do we need to be doing some more work. Um, And that's where I think BASE is succeeding, largely because when people describe the rabbi that they're looking for, when people in their 20s and 30s describe the kind of rabbi they're looking for, they want deep knowledge, they want kindness, and they want an acceptance and understanding of the life that they're living, both Jewishly and their wider identity. And if we're not doing those things, it shouldn't be a surprise that people are looking elsewhere. But the rabbis who um, are committed to BASE's vision and uh, and the spiritual uh, goals that we're trying to reach are deeply knowledgeable, um, are kind and hospitable, um, and are looking to accept and understand people for who they are, and then we can connect them to that tradition.
0: So, for people who have never n- heard of BASE until this morning, uh, or this afternoon, whenever it is you're listening, um, tell us uh, what BASE does, but more importantly, if you can focus on what makes BASE unique, right? What mm-hmm. mi- differentiates BASE from a Moisha house? What differentiates BASE from a Chabad house that is doing a very similar model?
3: Yeah, so um, BASE is a, a movement of pluralistic Jewish homes offering spiritual learning and rabbinic mentorship for those in their 20s and 30s. Um, and BASE is a project of, House or, uh, of Moshe House, we're housed under Moshe House, which is um, the largest organization serving the post-university Jewish crowd globally. The, the the first question is easy to answer. The difference between BASE and Moshe House is that Um, bases center around a rabbinic couple. So one of the partners is a rabbi, um, and the other partner is core to the work, but they might have a a separate full, full full-time job. Moishe houses don't have that built in, uh, into the home itself. In Moishe house, it's really peer led and it's, um, the young adults living in the home and leading, uh, leading the community themselves. On the base model, it's the rabbinic couple inviting people into their home, but everybody else goes back to wherever, wherever they happen, um to to live um you know what what makes it unique again like i alluded to this at the beginning the idea of inviting people into your home for shabbos or for the chagim uh or for for sitting in a learning circle with each other or for responding to um crises and life cycle events in your life is not new right like that's not unique and i don't think anybody's pretending that like oh we've come up with this brand new radical new idea i think what is different is the way um that that we recruit rabbis. It's explicitly pluralistic. We have rabbis from across the denominational and non-denominational spectrum um, leading this movement. And it's explicitly accepting and understanding towards everybody who comes into the home. Really the answer is always to say how can we say yes to as much as we can. I was just um I was just in Miami. We had a retreat with the with the rabbinic leadership from from across the states and, uh, I was hosted in the home of our rabbinic couple there. And they said like, our goal is to, is to never, ever tell someone when it's time to leave the house that when you come in and you're here with us and we want to be here along, alongside you. Um,
0: well, at some point, right? You have to wash the dishes, and you have to go to
3: bed. You know, <laughs> you, know, you I, would have to ask them, but I think they meant it. I really did. Like, I looked yeah. into their eyes when they were saying this, and I think, I think that's what the different model is right now. Is um, look, we know that rabbis who are graduating from the rabbinical schools are also looking for this kind of work. So that's a shift right here. Is that um, there's a shifting landscape away from congregational work, and many early career rabbis are looking for this more independent platform to serve as spiritual leaders. But they don't want to be alone. They still want to be in relationship with. Other rabbis who are doing this work, just not in that traditional model. And when you when you see how deeply committed they are to this idea of I I I want the um, I want to be able to hold our tradition and the wisdom of it and the ability to be with people um, at a time when they are spiritually seeking but get rid of the other walls that are in the way, right? This isn't anything goes, it's not a free-for-all. It's clearly deep commitment to uh, very serious, deep Jewish learning and counseling and, uh, and spiritual guidance. But without out the boundaries that have existed elsewhere.
0: Why do you think, um, broadly speaking, and and this is there are moisture houses in Canada and uh, there's not yet a base. But why do you think that, broadly speaking, this whole movement of towards decentralization and towards what you call the emergent network or whatever it is hasn't really made inroads in Canada yet?
3: Yeah, uh, I, I, this is such a great question. Um, I, I can, if I mean, I can the simple be a rabbi. answer
0: is because nobody's actually contacted me about opening up a base.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> look, uh, I, if I can be a rabbi for a moment and think about this kind of rabbinically, um, when you read the Gemara, when you read the Talmud, there is um, basically uh, an extended, unresolved debate through the entire Talmud as to what is the purpose of Jewish learning and life. Um, one, uh, one answer is it's to conserve what has come before. And the other answer is it's to innovate um, and to create newness, right? So, uh, and, and they're represented really beautifully um, with a, uh, like the metaphor of water, right? That one model is that you should be uh, like a reservoir, and the other model is that you should be an overflowing spring. Um, and it's unresolved. There's actually no definitive answer. The machloket, the debate goes back and forth through, through the entire Talmud. Um, and I think that those are great metaphors for Canada and the United States. Um, that Canada is really good at the reservoir model. Um, you know, I benefited from a robust supplementary Jewish education at my shul growing up, three days a week on Shabbos with really good Hebrew education. Um, and look, we the data is clearly there. Whenever people look at Canada, yes, things are shifting, but um, the the higher rates of education from K to 12 all the way up through adult education are, are clearly there. The community is more deeply Zionist. People have a much stronger at, uh, attention to their Jewish identity, even if it's ethnic, cultural, religious, however it is, right? So Canada is really good at the, at the reservoir model, at the at the kind of conservative model. And the United States, I think, largely based on broader American identity of, of being uh, an upstart, rebellious, innovative country, is much more um, adept at the the overflowing spring the mayan hamid gaber approach to to judaism which is why you see the haverah movement here the independent minyanim movement the jewish Emergent network all of these independent spiritual communities the secret is and i think that here's where the learning from the talmud comes it's not either or right like it's not um there's one principle though that i think that um is universal and that's you have to know why you're doing this work if, if you can't answer the question, what's the purpose of this? Why am I doing this? What is the transcendent sense of mission that I have? What's my vision of what it means to be Jewish and why people should care about being Jewish? And why they should find relevance and purpose in their Judaism versus any of the other myriad sources cycle of meaning, and purpose, yeah, and relevance. Et cetera, et cetera, right. Yeah. People go to Soul Cycle because it provides them purpose, relevance, and meaning. And if all we're doing in the Jewish world is engaged in the meaning game and saying, I want people to have a meaningful experience... That's fine. But guess what? Guess who you're up against right now, right? Because there's a lot out there that's also meaningful and fun um, and that you have to be able to answer. But why? Why? Why are you here in this moment? Um, For me, it's why I derive great inspiration from um, Hasidism and Neo-Hasidism, because that was the whole point of that was to say, why are you doing this? What's this all about? Why? Why should you care about this? And what's happening outside of just you as an individual, outside of your own sense of satisfaction or enjoyment in this moment, both of which are good. You should be satisfied and enjoy your Judaism. Um, but what? why are you doing this rather than something else? That's a question that we haven't been good at answering, um, largely because Judaism is a large ship that coasts along, and it takes a long time to turn that boat around. And for a while, we didn't have to answer that question. We knew the answer because I want to go to shul and I want my kids to have a bar bat mitzvah. Um, it's not going to cut it anymore. Uh, we have to be able to answer the question and we have to help other people understand why that question um, is is worth asking. If you can do that, you will find a degree of success.
0: So so if I can rephrase it based on the metaphor you just used, to the people that are looking for that change, you have to recognize that the boat is turning, but it but it's it's a big boat and it takes time it's a big to me yeah. and to the legacy institutions that are, that are the boat. Um, the message is the boat is turning whether you want it to stay straight or not. Um, and, yeah. And
3: <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I really do want to say like, there are some upstart communities that want to capsize the boat and would be thrilled to like, let's burn the whole thing down and start new. I, I'm not interested in doing that. I think the, the boat is a great place to be. And we just want to chart the right course and be together uh, on uh, on that journey with each each other. And I think that the model clearly exists right now. Like Moisha House and base are a really great model of partnering with legacy and heritage institutions and working with synagogues and in a in a non-competitive atmosphere to say, how how can we work together about this thing that we all care very, very deeply about and, and that we want each other to succeed at this?
0: Excellent. I couldn't have said it better myself. Jesse Pagan, thanks for coming on to Bonjour Chai. You are welcome back anytime.
2: Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com.
0: And now it's time the show for our nachas. Phoebe, what's your nachas this week?
2: Well,
1: um, I've got a, a couple. One is that I spoke to a Hadassah chapter on Zoom, which I had never done before, and that was a lot of fun. So um, if you have a Hadassah chapter and want me to speak with you on Zoom, I might be able to do that. I have a that. sister named um, Hadassah. Can I speak to your sister on Zoom? If she
0: wanted to. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't Um, know. I don't (laughs) know that that I cannot tell you.
0: uh, We've always joked about that in the house. How like, oh, there's a Hadassah chapter. Yeah, she's right there. Yeah. All right.
1: (laughs) Um, And yeah, my other, I don't know if it's Nahas. It might be anti-Nahas because it's sort of, um, it's that there's a New York Times feature, like an interactive feature about, um, by the journalist Jessica Gross um, about, elder millennials or middle-aged millennials so millennials as we all know are the you know the young people who waste all their money on avocado toast well now millennials are entering their 40s some millennials um, I'm not there yet but it's coming Um, and what I loved about this feature which I have not read that closely was really the illustration that went with it the art that went with it which is this and it was shared all over social media I've been seeing it constantly is this Uh, cross section of a rotten avocado like an avocado that's gone all brown and sad and i thought this was just so beautiful and brilliant and upsetting but hilarious at the same time because you have to have this right millennials are associated with avocados because for those who are not up on this um There was some people were often saying, and there was one, I think, one commentator specifically who said it, that millennials can't afford houses because they waste all their money going out and buying avocado toast at brunch and spending a lot of money on avocado toast. And this became kind of a meme and people um, would talk about this a lot because obviously whatever an avocado toast costs, the cost of living, of rent and so forth, um, is going to be you know, making a lot more of a dent than an avocado toast. So this got a lot of pushback anyway. So millennials, this generation became very associated with avocados. So the idea that as we age, we become rotten avocados, I just found extremely
0: funny. Um, yes. Something is rotten in the state of avocado.
1: <laughs> Certainly. Um so Avi, what's your nachas this week? Oh, I
0: have so much nachas. My, my my niece got engaged. I had an amazing bowl of ramen, kosher ramen in like kosher ramen?
1: Okay. with like. Can we please pause that? on this? I want to hear about the kosher. This ramen. is not
0: my nachas, but but but, my, but it was like there's a there's a place called Narutable in Teenek. He's a friend of mine. I've been a fan of his ever since I walked into a restaurant in the Upper West Side in Manhattan called Mike's Bistro, where he was the sous chef, and um, found out that I was from Chicago. Uh, asked me if I knew about Romanian salamis, uh, which is like the butcher shop that makes some of the best salamis in America. And I was like, yeah, sure. Next time I'm in New York, I'll bring you some Romanian salami. And I ended up bringing him a case of Romanian salami. I mean, like a dozen big ones with like the the carnazzol and the beer sticks, everything's loaded up. And uh, we've been friends ever since. He's he. I remember, I think he comped me a... Uh, an eight course tasting menu for two that night. And I just paid the bottle of wine. That was an amazing night. And we've stayed friends. He, he, became, he had a restaurant in, in, New, in Teaneck, New Jersey. He then opened up sort of a more fast casual, but still higher end uh, ramen place um, called Narutable in Teaneck. Uh, so shout out to Josh Masson, um for that. And uh, so I got a bowl of ramen with like duck schmaltz, matzo balls um, in there. In addition to all oh the goodness. other ramen esque things, a soft boiled egg and fresh veggies and, uh, Really, really truly unbelievable uh, ramen bowl um, that I had there. But you can do that in a community like New Jersey, um, so community like Teaneck, New Jersey. So, but that is not my nachos, and neither is my nieces. Uh, I really, really was moved by the there are these articles that are catnip for people that are former graduate students or really like study, students of a certain, you know specific specific form of study that end up being not quite academic articles but deeper than what a casual observer might listen might read you know what I'm talking about those articles I don't know where you get those articles um for yourself um but for myself I find them on Lairhouse often um which is a site uh devoted to studies like that sometimes other sorts of stuff um and in this uh week, there was an article in uh is entitled Re- Reclaiming the Musical Past, Leon Modena and Salomon Rossi in Context by Rebecca Sypes. Uh She's a musicologist. Uh, she's friends of friends of mine, but she wrote this article about a cappella music in the 1600s and into the late 1600s, into the 1700s, mainly by Leon Modena and Solomon Rossi. Salomon Rossi, who, um, if you heard him uh, and didn't hear the language, you would imagine would be very uh, early classical poly- polyphonic uh, singing, um, but was doing synagogue music and is still performed to this day. It does not sound like Jewish music, and what and she gets into a lot of really interesting issues. Even though I'd known about Salomon Rossi, I've sung his music, I've heard his music a lot, I own some of it on CD, but um, really, really fabulous, really interesting Diving deep into it only the way only great musicology can and leaving you interested with it. So, I highly recommend the Lair House article by Rebecca Sipis on Salomon Rossi.
1: That sounds great, as does the music itself.
0: Phoebe, wonderful episode as always.
1: Thank you so much, Avi. This has been so much fun.
0: Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending March 18th, Shabbat Parashat via Kelpikuday. Our show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour High. It is always one of the best ways that we get new listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold.
1: And I'm Phoebe maltz